0: our beloved sixth president, Mr. S.R. Nathan. Her Excellency Heather Grant, the High Commissioner of Canada, Mr. David Carden, the former U.S. Ambassador to ASEAN, members of the IPS family, ladies and gentlemen. As Lin just said, Ho Kong Ping is the first individual to be awarded the S.R. Nathan Fellowship for the study of Singapore. IPS established this fellowship to promote greater academic discourse on Singapore-centric issues. The fellowship advances the Institute's threefold mission, which are first the researching and, and, and sorry, the researching and analyzing of Singapore's policy issues and challenges. Two, building bridges between thought leaders. And C, communicating the Institute's work to the wider public. My colleague Arun Mahidnan has summarized our mission as the ABC of IPS. A for analysis, B for bridge building and C for communication. <clears throat> there is a growing culture of vibrant debate in Singapore on how Singapore should be governed, on the Singapore identity, and on the relationship between state and society. We want the SR Nathan Fellowship's ideas to further stimulate such thoughtful discussions I hope that younger Singaporeans, especially students who are worried about the future, will find a series of IPF Northern Lectures relevant, thought-provoking and reassuring. Ladies and gentlemen, we will not be here today without the kindness and generosity of individual and corporate donors and grant-making institutions. To endow the fellowship, IPS raised around $3 million. When you add the matching grant for the government, we have raised a total of $5.9 million for the, for the fellowship. Several of our donors are here today. <clears throat> we have with us leaders on the thought board, Singapore Pools, the NTUC Group, Capital Land, and of course, our own corporate associates who have been our steadfast supporters. I would like to record our deep gratitude to all of them and also to Mr. Kui King, King, Mr. KC Chu, who's with us, Mrs. Go Chok Tong and Mr. Teo Soon Hock for all the f- help they gave to the Institute in fundraising. <clears throat> At this point in my script, Lin has inserted Prop's personal comments about Kuomping. <laughs> and Quang Ping was v- nervous earlier about what I'm going to say about him. I, I want to begin by saying that I'm a great admirer of Kuomping and of his lovely and talented wife, Claire Chang. My pleasure in introducing Kuom is enhanced by the fact that I was a friend and admirer of his late father, Ho Hua, and his late mother, Li Lianfeng. Mr. Ho Hua was a very successful business leader, and he had also served Singapore with great distinction as our ambassador to the Kingdom of Thailand, to the UN in Geneva, to the Kingdom of Belgium, and to the European Economic Community. Kuang Peng's mother, Li Lianfeng, was a very famous writer and a patron of our artists, playwrights, and other cultural workers. <clears throat> I want to say to Kong Peng that he's a worthy son of two, these two distinguished parents. Ho Kuang Peng has excelled in all his professional endeavours as a journalist, as a business leader, as the founding chairman of the Singapore Management University, and as a public intellectual. It is in his, this last capacity that he's been awarded the SR Northern Fellowship. The title of his lecture series is Singapore, the next 50 years. He has chosen to start the series by focusing today on the topic of politics and governance. I'm confident that we will find his lecture a model of clarity, critical thinking, and eloquence. I also look forward to a thoughtful exchange of views during the Q&A session, which will be moderated by the Institute's director, Janada Devon. <clears throat> it now gives me very great pleasure to invite Mr. Ho Kong Ping to deliver his inaugural lecture.
1: Good evening and welcome to the first of five lectures in the IPS Nathan uh, Lecture Series. I'm, I'm very honored and humbled to be the first SR Nathan Fellow for the study of Singapore. And I think Mr. Nathan truly represents the very best values of the, pine, of the pioneer generation of which he ranks among its most illustrious representatives. And I'd like you to join me to acknowledge his presence here with us this evening. when asked to undertake this fellowship, my first reaction was a bemused um, surprise. I've been called a lot of very bad names in my lifetime, but never an academic. So I thought I might as well try that word on for size. And contrary to what Tommy said, I didn't quite see this as an award. Um, Having to prepare for these, uh, these lectures has taken away my best pastime, which is watching movies on long plane rides. So I'll be very happy when this Fellowship is over and I can go back to watching movies on SQ flights. I'm not an academic, uh, as anybody would know. It took me nine years and three universities in three different countries to just secure a simple bachelor's degree. But on the other hand, I'm not totally unqualified either. I first embarked on the study of Singapore in 1974, some 40 years ago, as a bright-eyed, idealistic, but somewhat naive 22-year-old journalist. And although that particular career ended somewhat unpropitiously, the journey of discovery has continued and I've approached my citizenship as both a right and a responsibility. Many of the people in the audience, the younger people, are not much older than I was at that time. And although the world and Singapore with it has changed a lot, I hope you too will engage with the life of this nation and society with an existential passion rather than a cynical apathy. Every Singaporean knows the significance of next year, the 50th anniversary of our independence. We do have, indeed, much to be proud of. The Singapore story is all about the creation and then the sustainable continuation of what can only be described as an improbable nation. How we did it, however, is not the focus of my lectures. Though, of course, understanding history is vital to foresee the future. I don't want to look backwards, but rather forward to the next 50 years. And I will refer to past events only as background to illustrate the foreground, and will simply assume that everyone here has a pretty broad knowledge of Singapore's history. And in addition, I will use data very sparingly, partly because I'm not good at research, but mainly because I prefer to be provocative and speculative, and as a wise editor that I had once told me, never let facts get in the way of a good story. My main motivation for being an SR Northern Fellow is to stimulate discussion among the younger generations below 35 years old. And I hope this can be an interactive dialogue as we go along, where we can collectively explore some of the issues I'll be raising. The the five broad topics I propose to cover is for this first lecture, politics and governance. The second will be on economy and business. The three remaining topics will be society and identity, demography and family, and security and sustainability. In what sequence this will be addressed, I haven't yet figured out, and I don't know how many of you will actually follow me through to the last lecture. But shall we start? To set the stage, I'd like to make three major observations which fundamentally orientate the direction and content of this entire series of lectures. I call them my three elephants in the room, which no one can fail to notice even if they make not a squeak of noise. The first, but not always recognized, elephant is the fact that national sovereignty can never be assumed, and the external environment can certainly turn hostile in the next 50 years. That we have had a consecutive streak of 50 years of uninterrupted economic growth and national sovereignty is not an immediate guarantee that our grandchildren will have the same good fortune. And ironically, it is in prolonged periods of peace that a national identity needs to be forged even more vigorously. History has shown that nations can decline and fall entirely due to internal decay. And without an external threat to galvanize a people, the unraveling of social cohesion becomes easier. This is one theme that will run through my lectures, namely that internal cohesion will be even more important and perhaps more difficult to achieve than in the first half century when external challenges united us all. But for now, I'll simply assume that Singapore will still exist in 50 years' time. But we should not take this assumption for granted and in a later talk on security and sustainability, I'll examine the challenges to this assumption. The second elephant is the obvious question. After stunning economic success, what next? Another 50 years of 3-5% to economic growth? What is the second act of this great Singapore miracle. Some observers have argued that Singapore's best days have passed because it has reached economic prosperity and there's very little to motivate the present versus the pioneer generation. middle age flab is therefore the cost of maturity, so this argument goes. Others argue that economic growth by itself is a sufficient vision or motivator of people, being doubly or triply richer than now is the prize for our hard work. My answer, actually assumption really, is that neither is the case. Instead, I think we are at a watershed moment in history whereby our economic prosperity now allows the younger generation the opportunity to realize their society's full potential beyond just the economic realm. As spectacular growth rates taper, The vision for a new Singapore can now embrace a more holistic spectrum. Because the foundations of economic growth and the pillars of political stability have already been laid, today's young generation can and will define and then set out to achieve its own definition of what a developed society means in terms of social justice, in egalitarian culture, political maturity, cultural creativity, and all the other markers of the truly exceptional nation which we can be. So far from having peaked, the best is yet to be. Because if we do not accept, almost as a point of faith, that our economic progress must now be matched by a more holistic maturation in other spheres of life, and that this flowering of the Singapore garden is the central task of the younger generation, then we are fated to either decline through thoughtless hubris or flounder in equally thoughtless self-doubts and anxieties. And so it becomes obvious then that it is in the domestic, social, cultural and political realms that change will be the most evident and the most dramatic in the next 50 years. These changes will also involve a process of continual self-invention so that the Singapore narrative, while hopefully remaining vibrant and relevant in a constantly evolving world may not necessarily resemble what it was before. It will not be a tension-free evolution, and we will see more heated so-called culture wars where the government will hopefully not intervene in a heavy-handed and patriarchal manner, but instead allow players from a wide spectrum of civil society to engage and find some mutually acceptable resolution between themselves. This journey towards social, political, and cultural maturity will, in my view, define the next two decades. For example, the quote attributed to the French philosopher Voltaire as the hallmark of a free society, and I quote, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it, unquote, is an attitude which should be held fervently by all sides of the political spectrum including those from angry bloggers to defensive ministers who tend to deprecate people rather than respectfully disagree with just their views. Now, the third elephant in the room is equally big and obvious, the biggest player in our political drama before and after independence. It is widely acknowledged that the PAP's dominance of not only the political process but almost the entire national culture was in large part the reason for Singapore's rise from third to first world in a single generation. The flip side, however, is that this very same dominance is also a main reason for concern in the next 50 years. Can that dominance be maintained? If so, how? And if not, what are the possible changes and Their ramifications. As I'll discuss the two other elephants in later lectures, let us now look more closely at the last elephant. Incidentally, uh, I should note that I'm happy to choose a more regal animal like a lion or dragon or more cuddly one like a panda bear, but note please all of you that I consciously did not choose a dinosaur (laughs) because it would not be taken very well. Now, like other political parties which founded the nation, the PAP started as a political movement, then a governing party, and finally a national institution with an impact on every sphere of life. But whereas similar parties in non-democratic nations have no problems extending their longevity by a simple fiat, as in North Korea, Cuba, Zimbabwe, The PAP has to legitimize its primacy through periodic general elections. The fact that it has won so many elections so overwhelmingly has made some people perhaps too blasé or cynical about election outcomes. But the drama of the last elections for parliament and president is certainly proof that outcomes are by no means guaranteed. If the saying that a fortnight is an eternity in politics. If that saying is true, then 50 years is almost unimaginably long and therefore unpredictable. There'll be at least three to four new prime ministers who have not even entered politics today. In only 20 more years, the youngest minister today will be retiring, and there will remain no more politicians who have any working memory of today's leaders, much less the founding generations. In the history of young nations, This is the most precarious period of transition when new generations who have not had the slightest personal memories of or connections to the founding generation take on the mantle of leadership. I grew up only knowing slightly the first generation leaders who were my parents age and some of whom they knew well as friends. But their passion, dedication and sacrifices were real to us even though they were already becoming the stuff of legends. To my children, all these people, their ideals, their values, their exemplary lives, are all just historical footnotes in school textbooks. Passing on policies is easy. Transferring ideals and values requires continual collective connections between generations of living, breathing people. And the history of third world economies striving towards first world economic and social political maturity is replete with failure, running the entire A to Z spectrum, from Argentina to Zimbabwe. To achieve consistent economic growth with broad-based gains for its entire people has already been a rarely scaled hurdle. To maintain exemplary, transparent governance with an entrenched ethos of incorruptibility is even harder. The PAP has enabled Singapore to rise to the top of the list of successful, newly independent states with these two accomplishments. Its third challenge is not to just remain in power, nor to maintain its one-party dominance and deny the opposition its self-described role as a co-driver of the nation, but to do so in a manner which ensures that the party truly renews itself and retains its original vitality, vibrancy, and vigor. But if history is anything to go by, this last task will be very daunting. History has not been encouraging to political parties after three or four generations. Sustained periods of power breeds complacency and hubris, which are always the seeds of self-destruction. The PAP has been in power for 56 continuous years, starting from its victory in the 1959 Legislative Assembly elections. The longest continuously ruling party in a democratic nation is in Mexico, where the PRI or Institutional Revolutionary Party lasted for 71 continuous years before it lost control of government. What about the experience of other parties which founded nation states? The Colorado Party of Paraguay lasted 61 years before it was ousted. The Israeli Labor Party ruled over 26 years of coalition governments before it also lost power. Near home in Asia, the record is even shorter. The Kuomintang of Taiwan, or the Republic of China, lasted 56 years before it was voted out. The Congress Party of India, which led its independence movement, lasted 49 continuous years. And the Liberal Democratic Party of post-war Japan governed for 38 years before it fell. The fact is, democratically elected ruling parties have generally floundered after about half a century to three quarters of a century. They become corrupt, riven by internal strife, and eventually prompt a previously loyal electorate to vote them out. Ironically, however, an electoral loss often enables drastic internal reforms to occur, and new reformers to gain control of the party. This new leadership coupled with disillusionment with the opposition turned governing party brings the founding party back to power and a dynamic equilibrium comprising a multi-party pendulum becomes a norm. The present ruling parties in Taiwan, Japan, Korea, and Mexico are all versions of this same story. So this has been the historical trend. It is not to say that political precedents are as immutable as the laws of physics. In another 15 years, 2030, which is about three more elections away, the PAP will overtake the record of Mexico's PRI as the longest continuously ruling party. Now that, I think, is very likely to happen, as it has not exhibited the signs of moral exhaustion and the onset of decay which these other parties already reached by their middle age. PM Lee is still robust in his 60s, has an acute sense of the future of Singapore, and remains overwhelmingly popular. The PAP has openly signaled an intention to develop organizational renewal and bring in different types of leaders than in the past. And the most insidious feature of political longevity, corruption, has shown no signs of surfacing yet. But can this longevity stretch beyond 70 years to 80? to 90, to 100. If the PAP can buck the trends of history, it will have set a new paradigm of longevity. And it has already set new paradigms of governance in other areas, so it's not an impossible goal, but possibly more difficult than any other earlier achievement. Electoral politics going forward will be increasingly uncertain and difficult to predict. But And unlike the dynamic equilibrium of a two-party dominant system where the political pendulum regularly swings from one ruling party to another, Singapore's equilibrium is stable but static. There is no precedent by which a ruling party has renewed itself to defeat in the polls simply because the PAP has never lost. In other democracies, an entire nation self-corrects through one party taking over from another quite regularly. Obama after Bush, Blair after Thatcher, Cameron after Blair, and so on. These are all the pendulum swings of a dynamically stable equilibrium. Singapore after the PAP, the idea is almost unthinkable. And yet, for the good of the nation, think it, we must. And one thought that I've put forward is that there are only three basic scenarios for the PAP, In the next 50 years. The first is the status quo scenario. As it suggests, this scenario sees the PAP controlling, say, 85 to 90 percent of parliamentary seats, with the opposition controlling at most a dozen seats or so. This is regardless of the popular vote, where support for the PAP has dropped in the last elections to a record low of 60 percent and may even decline further, because although the popular vote for the PAP has been declining. It is really control of parliamentary seats which really matters. The second is the dominant party scenario. The PAP remains control of an important two-thirds majority, or at the very least, an absolute majority of parliamentary seats. This is closer to the situation in Malaysia. Assuming that there are still around 90 to 100 seats in Parliament, that means in a dominant party scenario, opposition parties will control around 30 to 50 seats, which is almost unimaginable today. And the third scenario is a two-party pendulum scenario. A single opposition party or coalition wins an election. Power then shifts between the PAP and the second major party in Singapore. This is pretty much the norm in all other developed liberal democracies. And of course, a variant to this is that the PAP splits and new coalitions form which alternate in winning elections. Now these scenarios are quite obvious and commonsensical. It's the likelihood of these various scenarios occurring which might be controversial. So let me rate these probabilities into three categories. Unlikely, possible, and likely. And let me divide the next 50 years into three sets of 15 years with each set roughly comprising three elections or so. We can therefore create a matrix for the scenarios. The status quo scenario where you have the first 15 years it's possible second 15 years it's unlikely and the third 15 years in my view it's unlikely that the status quo is going to remain that means in the first scenario my view is for the next 15 years it's quite possible that the status quo will remain the dominant party scenario my view is that in the first 15 years It's very likely, second 15 years possible, third 15 years possible. And the two party pendulum scenario, first 15 years unlikely, second 15 years possible, third 15 years likely. This is my pretense at trying to be a political scientist because only when you create tables do you have some legitimacy as a political scientist. Otherwise, I wouldn't have done this. (laughs) Basically, what does this say? All these scenarios foresee that the PAP will face a challenge to retain the same degree of control over Parliament as it has had in the past. And so long as a very popular current PM Lee Hsien Long remains in control, not only as PM, but as SM or MM like his predecessors, it is very likely that the mantle of legitimacy can be extended to younger leaders. But even Mr. Lee, and I mean Mr. Lee Jr., Mr. Lee Hsien Lung, will be in his 80s by three more elections. The challenge will then be considerable from there on. And this is not actually a radical conclusion. Almost everyone I informally surveyed agreed with it broadly but differed in their estimation as to how many years it would take before the PAP would lose an election and how many terms it would stay out of power before bouncing back because history also shows that most founding political parties after it loses undergoes a period of drastic reform and bounces back. In fact, Mr. Lee Kuan Yew has himself publicly pointed out that the PAP will eventually lose an election, but he did not foresee a date or a cause. And it was in fact to mitigate what he considered the risks involved in this, with this inevitable event, which he dubbed a freak election, that the elected presidency was created. But as the last presidential election showed, this controversial measure may well backfire and simply prove that the law of unintended consequences is actually very powerful. A so-called freak presidential election, meaning unexpected by and unfavorable to the PAP, may happen sooner than a so-called freak parliamentary election. And another controversial measure, the creation of group representation constituencies to require a minority minority race MP in each GRC, but which has been criticized as also a convenient hurdle for opposition parties to win in GRCs may also backfire. So my conclusion is that I think measures to mitigate more so-called freak elections will not be forthcoming. Now, so far historical trends elsewhere point towards an election loss by the PAP in the second half of the next 50 years. Or to put it another way, it would be extraordinary if that did not happen. The issue we should now consider is what might cause the PAP to lose a general election, given its current overwhelming dominance. There are, in my view, three basic possibilities. First, an accidental or freak election. Second, a split within the PAP resulting in a loss to an opposition party which might not otherwise be stronger than a united PAP. And third, an anticipated outright loss to an opposition party. Now, take freak election. Advocates of the freak election thesis note that the near absolute control of parliament by the PAP is not reflected in the total anti-PAP votes in every general election, which is averaged around 35 to 40 percent. And this, of course, has been due to the first-past-the-post Westminster system, which intentionally favors a strong ruling party rather than multi-party coalition governments. And so a party winning only, say, 60 percent of the total votes cast in the election may still control some 90 percent of parliament, as is the situation we have in Singapore. However, this can also give the PAP and its supporters a false sense of security. If sufficient voters want more opposition parliamentarians than the paltry 10% at present, or they're unhappy about a particular policy, but they do not necessarily want a complete change of government, this might result in an election in a relatively small swing in the total votes cast, say 8 to 10 percentage points. And it could result in a Small majority still for the PAP of say 52% against 48% of votes cast. But it could also result in sufficient constituencies, especially the big GRCs being lost to actually tip the balance and result in an unintended loss of power by the PAP. Split within the PAP. The second cause of a loss of power would be if the PAP split into two. History shows that internal differences have to be pretty extreme to split a ruling party because opposing factions are self-serving enough to thoroughly dislike each other but remain unhappily married in order to remain in power. Japan's LDP is an example of convenient marriages between extremely divergent factions. Currently, there are not any foreseeable issues No distinct ideological rifts, which, which can be so controversial as to cause a split. Now, of course, over the long course of history, perhaps the idea of reunification with Malaysia or a complete end to national service, these might qualify as fundamentally radical enough to split a political party. But these sorts of issues aren't on the cards. And it's hard to imagine issues of the scale of, say, Scottish independence or Hong Kong's system of direct elections for chief executive, it's hard to imagine that these types of issues being on the Singapore horizon. The recent issues which did not have a consensus within the PAP or cabinet, such as the granting of casino rules or legalizing gay sex, are hardly divisive enough to cause a split in a party which has prided itself on being a broad church and upholding pragmatism as its operational philosophy. Nevertheless, the last elections have shown that retired PAP MPs do not necessarily toe the party line. And with each passing election, challenges to current leadership by current or past MPs and ministers may well grow without the overwhelming authority of Mr. Lee Kuan Yew to squash dissenting voices. But in itself, the PAP is also becoming a more pluralistic party with a great diversity of voices in its ranks, which of course is no bad thing, but it carries along with it its own dangers. The third possibility, that of an outright convincing and even widely anticipated win by an opposition party, such as occurred recently in the Indian general elections, is only possible if there is a long, irrecoverable, and massive loss of legitimacy by the ruling party. This is not likely to happen just because of honest policy mishaps, perhaps due to an innate Asian conservatism towards regime change and an Asian deference to authority. But on the flip side, Asian electorates are increasingly intolerant about corruption in public office, partly because it is so prevalent. China's President Xi Jinping is keenly aware of this. Widespread corruption and not the demand for democracy or unhappiness with just a few specific policies will lead to the demise of the Chinese Communist Party through its total loss of legitimacy. Singapore achieved its, its unrivaled, enviable record of incorruptibility, largely because Mr. Lee Kuan Yew set a tone of governance which equated to an almost ascetic personal lifestyle. His colleague Dr. Gokeng Sui even referred to the P, P, PAP as a priesthood, a calling which involved deep personal sacrifices. And so its exceptionalism on incorruptibility has allowed the PAP to get away with governance styles, the paternalism of the so-called nanny state, which might be resented by many Singaporeans, but grudgingly accepted because of widespread trust that whatever its policy mishaps, the political leadership is generally acting in the best interest of the public and never for their own personal financial gains. The question here, is whether that same exceptionalism can be maintained two, three decades from now when the priesthood, which was the original PAP, becomes but a quaint footnote in history books and the party starts to resemble as many aging political parties, a clubby, well-paid fraternity with its own sense of entitlement. If future political leaders become blasé about corruption, accepting it perhaps as part of the general cynicism of the new normal, and value their occupation as similar to the well-paid investment bankers against whom their pay is benchmarked, rather than as an almost sacred mission, as Dr. Goh described it, then Singapore, indeed, will no longer be exceptional. And if Singaporeans become cynical about the absolute incorruptibility of their government and see their leadership as being no different than counterparts in ASEAN, in Hong Kong, in Taiwan, or indeed in India or China, then the calculus of governance will change forever. Now of course, there's no evidence that corruption has increased in Singapore's public life despite a few scandals involving mid-level bureaucrats. Singapore remains exemplary among its neighbors and even its counterparts in developed countries for its low level of corruption. The high salaries paid to ministers will certainly mitigate the need for corruption, although as we have seen with convicted investment bankers, being ultra-rich can breed an entitlement mentality that more should be mine. But generally, massive loss of trust in the PAP is not likely to happen soon, although there's certainly some cynicism about the selflessness of highly paid ministers which did not apply to the founding generation of leaders. And if that continues, if this cynicism continues and there's a slow erosion of confidence and trust towards political leadership, such as now exists in Western liberal democracies, and if that happens over a period of time, this gradual erosion of trust can be as corrosive as more dramatic causes. One of the reasons why Hong Kong youth have reacted so fiercely to to the universal suffrage issue is because their Chief executive and deputies have lost the trust of ordinary people since 1997. If the chief executives had been appointed by Beijing but did not represent only the interests of the rich and were not tainted by corruption, I dare say that the issue of nominated candidates would be less controversial today. Lack of democracy and authoritarianism can be grudgingly accepted if leaders have integrity and the public interest truly at heart. Now, of these three possible causes for the loss of power, which have the greatest likelihood of occurring? I would personally rate the first possibility, a so-called free collection, is having the highest chance, followed by an internal split, and the least likely is an outright, widely predicted loss. But this is a pretty arbitrary stab in the dark. In all likelihood, it is the interplay and the combination of these three scenarios in different ways which will pose a challenge for the PAP and its scenario planners in future decades. Now, just as I've highlighted three possible causes for loss of power, there are many factors which can either delay or accelerate these possible causes. One is demography. Singapore is one of the fastest aging nations in the world. Old people are inherently more risk averse than the young. They want to conserve whatever they already have, and be it wealth, health, or benefits. They're not likely to risk what they have for the sake of vague idealistic notions, such as freedom of speech, or more opposition in parliament. However, the silver vote can also be vociferous about protecting their own rights. And just before the last general elections, an IPS survey showed that the percentage of elderly swing voters rose to 45.4%, compared to only 35.2% in the previous election. And note that the only demonstrations at Honglin Park which have been attended by people over 60 years old were those protesting about CPF and MediSave issues. So keenly aware of their disgruntlement, the government has since launched many initiatives to recognize the so-called pioneer generation, including an $8 billion healthcare package. And it'll be interesting to see how this translates into votes. Another factor which could delay or accelerate the possible loss of power, is the PAP's organizational structure. The Carter system, found both in the Catholic Church and in communist parties, mitigates against internal fractures. As the joke goes, Lenin was in fact, was in fact a closet Catholic because he admired and copied the world's most self-perpetuating system, whereby the Pope chooses the Cardinals, who choose the Pope, and together they control hundreds of millions of people. It's therefore virtually impossible for upstart rebels within the Catholic Church or in a Leninist, Carter-style political party to seize control of the party or the church. Nevertheless, this can lead to internal rigidity and intrigues. Yet another factor is possible loss of economic competitiveness. The trade-offs in fast growth but low freedom societies is that the delivery of a rapidly improving material life will offset the relative paucity of civil rights. But as Singapore's economy matures and the low-hanging fruits of economic growth have all been plucked, then the economic trade-offs begin to fray and the social compact can begin to unwind. A final but very important factor is the relative strength of opposition parties. Other than a freak election, A change of power can only happen if the electorate believes that if given the chance, an opposition party can actually govern. Recent elections have established the credibility of some opposition parties as serious-minded, competent and constructive. The frequently made assertion that Singapore's talent pool is too small to ever have more than one credible political party is actually quickly losing credibility. There are also signs that the electorate is distinguishing between different opposition parties in their credibility, and a sorting out process will result perhaps in only one or two strong opposition parties. One watershed event was the January 2013 by-election in Pongo East, where a three-cornered fight with two opposition parties and the PAP contesting should have resulted in a PAP victory. But the Workers' Party candidate won largely because the anti-PAP voters all cast their votes for one single party which they deemed most credible and there was no splitting of opposition votes. And so the Workers' Party is likely to be the biggest beneficiary from the next election. If and when it wins enough seats to be considered an entrenched party, and there's no hard or fast rule, but perhaps 20% of parliamentary seats or 15 to 20 opposition MPs will make it such the Workers' Party will find it's going both harder and easier. Harder on one front because the underdog effect, which cushioned it from scrutiny on various levels, will be eroded considerably. It will have to demonstrate that beyond a credible policy manifesto, it must have the organizational depth and cohesion to actually run a country. Easy, on the other hand, because it will have more organizational resources, and perhaps even a geographic stronghold from which to expand. And it can also argue that competent management of town councils is a stepping stone to running a city-state. Though ideological and policy points of difference are important, the ultimate hurdle in the leap from credible opposition to possible ruling party in the eyes of ordinary, mainly swing voters, is the ability to govern. If the opposition became the ruling party, will the proverbial train still run on time? Will my daily life become more or less of a hassle than before? And therefore, focusing on the Workers' Party's ability or lack thereof to manage the town councils in their own constituencies will be a PAP election strategy. It may also be why the WP is relatively quiet in Parliament, preferring to prove itself on the ground through rigorous door-to-door canvassing and mundane but important constituency work. And it may also not be accidental that a special body under the PM's office was recently created to coordinate municipal services, recognizing its electoral electoral importance in the coming elections. And finally, grassroots politics will again, as in the PAP's early years, become more important when the opposition sets up rival community organizations in its own geographic strongholds. This may permeate into the larger civil society, and one possible negative effect may be greater polarization, but it will be offset by, by the positive impact of genuine grassroots leadership being tested on both sides and more of a bottom-up rather than a top-down process of leadership renewal. Whew. I've never been an academic or a lecturer And I'm not sure I'm gonna do this, Mr. Janadas, after the final one. Now I have covered the politics part of this lecture. Let me just delve a little bit into governance before I conclude. A key issue here is governability. To what extent will Singapore be more difficult to govern regardless of whom is the political party? I can identify several trends, which I think will affect governability. First, the ability of governments to control information will continue to erode, despite sometimes frantic or illogical attempts to stem it. Because because knowledge is power, and the ability to control access to information is the key to power, Governments instinctively want to be gatekeepers of information. But of course, as everyone knows, increasingly social media and its incredible variety of means for people to connect, even across a heavily censored internet system, is undermining government's ability to shape how people think. Anything censored is still widely available in alternative media, and therein lies the rub. At what point will control and censorship of the mainstream news, cultural, entertainment media, (laughs) pseudo-documentaries? Why do I hear the laughter? I was just referring to a range of media. When will it become counterproductive? By not really achieving the purpose of blocking access to information, but instead end up alienating the social activists who despite their small size and their not being heartlanders are influencers beyond their numbers. The Singapore government has a counter argument and it is that even if a control or censorship measure does not achieve its stated purpose, it signals the values of a society It must be enacted irrespective of the chances for success. And this was one of the reasons advanced for our continuing to try to block pornography sites, that even if it is not going to be successful, it signals the values of a society. So against this whole backdrop, we now have gay penguins singing to Singapore with love. And more of this will happen in future. Second, it will be increasingly difficult to hold the political center together in the midst of polarizing extremes, liberal versus conservatives, local versus foreign, pro-life versus pro-abortion, gay versus straight, and so on. Now, whilst fault lines along race and religion have been contained and have not cracked, the so-called culture wars are intensifying. The PAP government has steered clear of siding with any particular viewpoint, and this moderate centrist approach has been largely successful. But as the culture wars escalate, the government may well have to take a stance and offend at least one part of the electorate. But such culture wars in themselves may not be a bad thing if seen as necessary growing pains towards what seems to be an an oxymoron, but in fact is a desirable goal, and that is a a cohesive diversity in society. We even see within the Catholic Church itself the top leadership, meaning the Pope, having to stimulate discussions on what were previously totally taboo subjects. Thirdly, diminution in the stature of political leadership will encourage the rise of so-called non-constructive politics. Now, future leaders simply cannot command the sufficient respect and moral authority to just decree what is acceptable and unacceptable criticisms to have the authority to simply deride wide swaths of criticism as simply non-constructive is going to be wishful thinking because people in the future are not going to accept it. However, if political power in Singapore will increasingly be shared between competing groups, as it is now in Hong Kong and Taiwan, it is important that political discourse does not descend to the theatrical farces which now characterize their legislative meetings. In these countries, a political culture of mutual respect has not been established, and it's imperative that this be established in Singapore in coming years so that by common consent of all political players rather than by ministerial decree, a consensual culture of constructive politics emerges. Fourth, maintaining an ethos of egalitarianism in an increasingly unequal society will require more and political oratory. Now, while Singapore was never a socialist state, its ethos was fervently egalitarian, and this helped to create a sense of common purpose, exemplified by the 1970s concept of a rugged society, which some of us in our 60s may remember, which today sounds quaintly outdated, but did indeed embody a particular ethos. But in recent years, the ostentatious pursuit of wealth rivaling Hong Kong standards has become fashionable. Extolling our casinos, our Formula One Grand Prix, our highest per capita number of billionaires and Lamborghinis in the world is evidence that Singapore has now become a world-class city. Such exhortations, such claims to fame could perhaps be dismissed as the crassness of the rich. Except that this ethos of the elite is occurring just when income inequality has become its worst since independence. The gulf between rich and poor Singaporeans, not only in terms of wealth, but in terms of values, is probably more than ever before and continuing to widen. Even the gap between old money and its sense of responsible philanthropy and the nouveau riche's pension for affectation and bling is also widening. So besides the sheer economic impact of income inequality is that the ethos of egalitarianism is also unwinding very rapidly. And finally, the absence of a galvanizing national mission and a sense of dogged exceptionalism that we are the little dot that refuses to be smudged out, that disappearance of this dogged exceptionalism as we grow increasingly rich and complacent, it will lead to a sense of anomie, which has been defined as I I quote, personal unrest, alienation, and anxiety that comes from a lack of purpose or ideals, unquote. Sociologists will tell you about the sense of anomie with a society. This is the disease of affluence which affects individual people as well as societies. And will we discover that we have arrived only to find ourselves lost again. If all this seems unnecessarily pessimistic, it is because I personally think the danger of hubris right now is greater than the danger of underconfidence. Finally, a discussion of Singapore politics would not be complete without touching on a major player in political governance, the civil service or more accurately, it's creme de la creme, the elite administrative service. There has historically been a close association between the admin service and the government, not simply because the civil service has known only one political master in 50 years, but mainly because a large number of cabinet ministers came from the admin service. This has led, on the positive side, to a very close and sometimes seamless relationship between the government and civil service which is not seen anywhere else in liberal democracies with their changing ruling parties and a a very clear distinction between the starting and ending points of a political versus public sector career. The negative side, which has been most mentioned, is the lack of intellectual and experiential diversity between the political and public sector elites, resulting in groupthink and a uniformity of perspectives. This ultimately leads, it is argued, to a lack of creativity in solutions to problems, a blinkered view of the world and how people will react to policies and a lack of robustness in policy debates. A new dimension which may be emerging is the impact of the new normal with its increasing uncertainties over the electoral performance of the PAP in successive general elections on the civil service. A civil service whose identity has been so closely tied to the fortunes of the ruling party can become demoralized and disoriented if the ruling party is increasingly uncertain of its own future. With more electoral volatility in the future, it is imperative that the civil service work harder to develop its own sense of self, its own ethos and values. And the purpose is not just to distance itself from the ruling party, but to develop a culture and an identity strong, robust, and resilient enough to embrace and absorb and not become divided and uncertain should more young civil servants hold opposing views from the ruling party. A politicized civil service would be disastrous for Singapore should the politics of the new normal intensify in coming decades. My final remarks are about today's younger generation, the inheritors of the future. Fifty years is both a very long time and a short time. In this period, Singapore has moved from third world to first world with physical and economic changes beyond recognition. But there's a real danger that we may in reality become stuck in a kind of first world minus with first world economic characteristics but without the social political or social cultural attributes which our leaders call hardware, which characterizes a deeper, a more holistic maturity. And yet 50 years in the lifetime of a family or even in a individual is not all that long. Three generations, my parents, myself and my children have all lived through parts of this 50 years. Shared experiences, common memories, still bind people across five decades. The deepening of a shared national identity, the pursuit of a compelling social vision, and the shaping, articulation, and molding of that vision through a collective imagination is the central task of the younger generation. Because stumbling into the future without a clue as to what you want and what are the promises and the perils is quite possibly the best way to ensure that we will encounter an accidental disaster. Now, thankfully, I have not in my conversations with young people encountered either the hubris or the immobilizing self-doubts which I was afraid of. It's not as if the young people I spoke to were very happy with the state of affairs in Singapore today. Far from it. Almost everyone I talked to was critical of one issue or another and to varying degrees. But what impressed me was the overwhelming ses- sense of what sociologists call self-agency, the simple notion that I can change things. I'm in control of my life and my future. As someone who's been somewhat depressed by the tired cynicism of my own peers, I found this boundless optimism, some would call it the naivete of youth, tremendously encouraging. Our young people are not apathetic, nor are they synchrophones. But they take the society they live in today as a given, a matter of fact reality for which they neither feel the same degrees of gratitude or resentment as members of my generation. They have also broadened their vision of Singapore, my home, to be more than just relentless but unidimensional economic progress, to include other aspirations. The thoughtful young Singaporean today recognises that the vision of a future Singapore cannot simply be a top-down narrative, but will have to be co-created from the ground up. They regard the government and the PAP as a matter of fact, not a savior, not a tyrant, but someone like a parent who is respected but must be grown out of. And clearly a a paternalistic political culture is not going to excite, much less retain the loyalty of younger Singaporeans. Whereas in my generation, the government and the PAP were always the reference point around which all discussions revolved, whether positive or critical, today's young people seem to be bored by too much purely political discussion. They just want to move on to talk about what next. And what next means a myriad of civil society causes, sometimes similar, sometimes overlapping, sometimes even opposing and contradictory causes. What unites them all is the immediacy of self-agency, not waiting around for somebody else to do something you think is needed, but doing it yourself. This kind of political DIY, or do-it-yourself attitude, has, I believe, in the past decade encouraged a participatory democracy which actually resembles Singapore's early years, but which then surrendered to a long period of developmental authoritarianism during perhaps my growing up years. One striking example I'm sure you're all aware of which was not imaginable in my generation was the response to the famous gay penguins episode which I do truly hope will go down in Singapore's history as a kind of comic relief we need as a nation while we tackle the bigger issues. Now the fact that some bureaucrats banned some children's books as pro-gay and anti-family is not unexpected and not dissimilar in logic to the banning of chewing gum or long hair decades ago. But 20 years ago, such bureaucratic actions, not necessarily about LGBT, but about anything else, would have been met by only grudging acquiescence. But as a sign of the times, including the power of social media, the response this time was some 400 young parents decamping to the National Library to read the banned and to be pulped books to their children. It was not a strident political demonstration, more like a children's outing, but the point was clear. And the same is true for the unprecedented 26,000 people who gathered at the Pink Dot event, not just to celebrate gay rights, nor to oppose the government, but to celebrate the increasing diversity and self-agency of civil society. So I conclude today's talk with a hopeful view of Singapore politics in the next 50 years, simply because in the larger picture I do not see the ossification of an aging political elite increasingly out of touch with the restless youth, such as led to the Arab Spring, nor do I see fundamentally divisive issues, such as in Hong Kong, over its relationship with China, nor the exhaustion of old Europe unable and unwilling to confront big, difficult issues. At 50, Singapore is still a young nation in search of its own future. I don't think there are more or fewer challenges ahead than in the past 50 years. They will simply be different challenges. And it will be the task of subsequent SR Northern fellows to continue identifying and debating them. And I hope I've started the ball rolling. I just want to end and add an end note to this lecture. A few weeks ago, my wife and I visited the British Museum's latest exhibition in London entitled Ming, Ming Chao, 50 Years That Changed China. This period from 1400 to 1450 saw an unprecedented flowering of Chinese civilization in the arts, diplomacy and trade. It was best exemplified not by its emperors but by the Muslim eunuch Zheng He. His armada of ships with over 20,000 people on each voyage and on ships 10 times larger than any of its European contemporaries traveled to all corners of the world a century before Columbus and Vasco da Gama. But the point is not that. The point was what the curators noted in that exhibition, that this golden period of Chinese civilization coincided with, or was in fact, caused by a proactive philosophy of ethnic, religious, intellectual tolerance an intentional cultivation of diversity and a purposeful curiosity to know the unknown. In subsequent dynasties, the closing of the Chinese mind led to centuries of darkness and humiliation, which are only now ending. The moral for Singapore is twofold. First, that 50 years is a long enough time for people to create wonders And so we should see the next 50 years with an excitement towards what Singapore can yet become, with a childlike amazement at each unfolding opportunity. And second, that openness, tolerance and diversity, whilst also bringing their own risks, are the essential ingredients for greatness, a goal which is not beyond our collective grasp. Thank you for your indulgence today, and I hope to see that some of you will still show up in three weeks time at the second lecture. Thank you.
2: President Arden, uh Professor Koh, friends and colleagues, I think all of you will agree with me that IPS made the right choice in choosing uh, as the first SR Northern Fellow for the study of Singapore. I can't imagine anyone else uh, making a bigger splash um, with the first lecture. Uh, and it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> we have about 30 um, odd minutes uh, for questions. Uh, there are mics on the side, or I think they have also um, mics being passed around if you need one. Just raise your hand and maybe pass passed to you. Um, Let me begin by asking you the first question. Um, Over the past quarter century, the PAP share of the vote ranged from 61% in 91 and 60% in 2011 to a high of 75% in uh, 2001. That's a range of 15 percentage points. Despite that range, the opposition's share of seats did not vary much. It ranged from about two in most of those general elections to four in 1991 to six in the last general election. Even if the share of the opposition votes were to rise by five percentage points, the next general election, whenever it is, if that distribution if that share of the votes distributed equally around Singapore you would perhaps see the opposition gain one GRC and vice versa even if the PAP's share of votes were to rise by five percentage points it probably will not see any increase in its seats this is because we are a city and a country um, any part of Singapore looks the same as any other part of Singapore, more or less. Um, two-party systems in first-past-the-post-election electoral systems usually have very strong socioeconomic divides that coincide with the regional differences, just like in the American South or in Britain's case, Even when Maggie Thatcher was all-powerful, the Labour Party had a toehold in North England and Scotland, um, and therefore, with even 30% of the votes, they had a sizable number of seats in Parliament. So among the three scenarios that you have listed, I would propose a fourth, which is the alternate dominant party scenario. In other words, you'll have a situation where one party or another gains slightly more than 50% of the votes, and you'll see a sea change. Not a two-party system, not a stable alternate two-party system, not a dominant party system, but an alternate dominant party system. So the question is, what do you think of the scenario? What are the dangers it poses, um, if any? And three, what what might we do, or should we do something to avoid? such a scenario
1: I'm not quite sure I understand the alternate dominant party in other words
2: you're not going to have a system where even if you have say one party getting 55 percent of the votes the other party 45 percent you're not going to have a case where the opposition party will be something that is so strong as to pose an alternate government in the the, the way traditional two-party systems work. So you have 55, 45 votes or seats in parliament. Yeah, you're you're going to have one dominant party being succeeded by another dominant party because this this is a city in a country and this is why in most, in many American cities, you have in effect one-party municipalities. But when you
1: say, I mean, I can see a scenario where, like you see in Malaysia, right, where you've got a dominant party still, but yeah. you've got now a strong opposition yeah. that is getting close to, to crossing beyond the two-thirds majority line. That's still a dominant party scenario. Yeah. Or, if the way you put it, the ruling party loses power. it loses everything. Yeah, it loses everything, meaning it becomes um, so an opposition you, party.
2: Yeah, you may have a system where it will be one, another party with, uh, say, 80, 80 seats with 55% of the votes. Oh. And, uh, and the do- PAP with 60s. Not an alternate, not a stable, Okay, yeah. so you
1: might get a situation, I mean, to be specific, yeah. you might get a situation where it is super freak, yeah. right? Super yeah, freak. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you've got the Workers' Party yeah. now having, the re- like, similar to the PAP, yeah. the Workers' yeah. Party having not just um, majority seats in Parliament, it has an overwhelming dominance. That's right. Well, I mean, I suppose, my, what's my view of that? I'm not sure I would consider it very likely. But I would think that if it does happen, um, what's likely to happen is similar to in Taiwan where you had the DPP. I don't think the Workers' Party itself would like to have a situa- situation where suddenly it has 80 seats in parliament because it's going to probably be voted out in subsequent elections. So, yeah, I mean, that anything is possible. Um, but I wouldn't think it is that likely I would think a more likely situation is the um, uh, the ruling party might just barely lose and it will be still a sizable uh, minority but I, I don't know to what extent this super freak scenario is going to frighten Singaporeans to not vote for no, position.
2: it's not a, a free scenario it is actually the scenario that you have in most American cities one or the other party dominates particularly because cities are uniform more or less every part of the city looks more or less like every every, every other part but let's uh, turn it over and and have members of audience yes please you have a mic over there
3: uh, kp uh, thank you very much for your uh, remarks uh one question i have is your view Regarding about the role of public sort of institutions, such as for example People's Association, HDB and all that, because I think you know in the evolving sort of a, uh, democracy and also like for good governance, some people feel that like the perception is that because as you say like the civil service may be in some sense too sort of politicized or they're so used with a certain ruling party. So many Singaporeans feel that maybe for the long-term sustainability of our system, we should have public institutions to be seen to be neutral and fair. You know, like, say for example, you may have a situation where you may have a ruling MP, you know, he's the advisor to the CCC, but then if he loses, so the opposition MP may not be, you know, so I just wanted your comments in the context of longer-term, you know, developments.
1: Yeah. My understanding is that your question is, what will happen to, or what should happen to, ostensibly public institutions that are supposed to serve the entire public good and the entire nation, being possibly utilised for the interests of a political, particular political party. Uh, Cases that we've seen about HDB upgrading will only apply to those constituencies that have voted for the government and so on. Is is that correct? I mean, I think what is going to happen is what normally happens in, in any country where you begin to have a greater balance of power. I don't think it is entirely unnatural for a ruling political party to have the huge dominance that it has to not conveniently utilize whatever instruments of state that are available to it for its own benefit. It's understandable, as long as it's legal. However, if you begin to see a greater balance of power in, in Parliament, and if you do have something like 30 opposition seats and so on in Parliament, I would think that that voice will be strong enough that the instruments of state would be, and the civil servants who serve these instruments of state like HDB will probably have to uh, recognize that they have to toe the line and really be completely neutral. Um, and my remarks about the civil service is that I think it behooves the civil service to recognize that such things may be coming and that you may even have members of the, younger members of the civil service who might have opposing views and older people. And it's critical for the civil service to not become um, politicized. Such things, if they continue, will tend to politicize Singapore and it would not be good for politics of Singapore.
2: If we can keep each of the questions short. Um, Next question. You stunned them into silence. (laughs) Yes, please, Casey. Thank you again for a great delivery. The question is, do you? What would happen if, indeed, in a super freak election, the Workers' Party came to power? Would the government, would the PAP, allow this? Meaning to say, would they accept it, or will there be, you know, an
1: unprecedented military takeover? Casey, do you think I am stupid enough to even want to bother to answer that question? Next question, please. I'm not going to be baited by you. Thank you.
2: We have a citizen's army. In other words, if that were to happen, most of the soldiers would have voted for the other party. (laughs) But
1: my my more honest honest answer to that is I, I do believe that the ruling party would accept it, because this ruling party, I think, plays by the rules, although they may push it a little bit, Um, and I think this ruling party understands history, and it well recognizes, as I've pointed out, that virtually all the ruling founding parties that lost an election got voted back in again, and I think this ruling party is wise enough, at least the I think it is wise enough that they would recognize that losing one election and biding its time to win back again is easy, quite easily achievable, but disallowing the democratic process to proceed is going to destroy Singapore. So my more serious answer to that is I do not think this will happen.
2: We have people on top there. Any questions from that here? yes okay
4: um hello
2: yes, you yes can um, hear
4: you? okay my question is about actually the next election um, you've spoken very eloquently about the last 50 years but i was wondering what your take is um, about the prospects of the next election given that at, at the elite level i think uh, public servants are pretty confident that they have achieved a lot in the last couple of years but are you Are you sure? I mean, do you think that the public has been convinced by the efforts um, in the last few years? Thank you very much.
2: So super freak, minor
1: freak? I know, I was trying so hard to talk about things over the next 50 years so I would be in safe territory, but interest is only on the immediacy, isn't it? So you want to talk about the next elections? How many, how many, you want to start betting now? We could start, I do that with Janadas always, we take bets at dinner venues about how many percentage the the PAP vote will be, and so on. But uh, <laughs> more seriously, what is your question about how do I foresee the PAP's performance to be in the next elections?
4: Yeah, I mean, generally, would it be improve or, or not in the next election?
1: <laughs> you know, I mean, honestly, I, I wouldn't know. I can only tell you what I, I hear. I hear that there, there are sections of Singaporeans for whom the the desire for having an alternative voice is so strong that they want to clearly see an entrenched um, opposition. I have to admit, I have not seen anyone or met anyone who's voiced openly that they they wish to see a change of government. But I have met people who would say that no matter how hard the government tries today, and they give credit to everything that the government has done, many people will still vote for opposition, not because they feel the government hasn't done enough, but because they believe in entrenching a opposition with at least about roughly 20 seats or so. That is one sentiment. Another sentiment is that the older generation, which voted, which, which had some of its votes go towards the opposition because they were not happy with how they were taken care of, now will feel more taken care of, and that may swing the votes back the other way. So if you want, we can take a bet, but that's about as, more, as much as I can do. Take a bet. I have no clear view as to how the PAP will do better in the next election. But my general sense is that it's difficult. The longer an opposition, a ruling party stays in power, it's difficult to maintain the same, um, same quantum of support it has had in the past, just as a pure historical trend and not talking about any specific election.
2: It's safer to speak about the next 50 years. However, he won't be around to check if he's right. <laughs> the other half would have forgotten. <laughs> so yes, please.
5: I find your comment about uh, the older people um, are, are forming the protesters at, at Hong Lim Park. And, uh, all the time, uh, it is thought that it is the older generation that understands the PAP government the most because they grew and they knew what were the challenges faced by Mr. Lee Kuan Yew and his team. Um, and you mentioned that it is the young people today that have got you know, wider aspirations and don't look at just you know, economic progress. Uh, I'd like to share two points and uh, we'll seek your comments on that. One is, if you look at the older people, many of them, like myself, I served 30 years in the Army, and I know the system from inside and how things are and how policies are decided. Number two, being a grandfather, many old people are now very, very concerned about the Singapore their grandchildren are going to inherit. So I believe that it would be serious if the government doesn't understand why the older generation are not going to buy the final generation package as a candy that they're going to be worn over. Because go to any hawker centre, Wherever, because we always say that you know only the youngsters go on uh, um, the internet media, in alternative media. But you go down to all the sh- uh, 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 hawker centres and all that. Now, just only two weeks ago,
1: uh, could you I was, up your yeah, your sure. Comments? Yeah, yeah.
5: Just only two weeks ago, I was at uh, Parkway Central Market, and now people do not whisper when they talk about why they dislike about what's happening. They talk at the top of their voice. And it is the very important that the government understands that it is not whispering anymore. Thank
1: you. Okay. I think that point should be taken by Mr. Janandas Devon, who is also <laughs> head of information services for the government.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm not answering that. <laughs> yeah. Yes, please. Prof. There's one more over there? Okay.
0: Um, I want to begin by congratulating Kuang Ping. I think his, his lecture has uh, lived up to my expectations of clarity, critical thinking and eloquence. Um, one of the takeaways from this lecture is that Singapore society has changed. The young people feel empowered. I think they want to be governed with a lighter touch than your generation and mine. In view of this, do you think the decision by MDA recently to ban to Singapore with love is not in keeping with the kind of light-touch governance that we expect to see?
2: You want me to answer that question also?
1: <laughs> Tommy, would you like Janet to answer that question also? Um, I, actually, I... I felt this was really a missed opportunity um, on the part of the government because, and I haven't seen the movie, I have only seen snippets of it uh, on YouTube. The snippets I saw were of really aging people in Thailand, elsewhere, who may have really posed a threat to Singapore by being hardcore communists, but clearly, they were rather sad people today and my sense is that if the government had not just banned it but in fact welcomed it and screened it and used it as an opportunity to educate singaporeans that there was a hard ruthless struggle for the soul of singapore some people won some people lost those who lost are not to be treated badly they believed in what they sought to do. But most importantly, the sense I think any Singaporean would have if they watched that movie, if you trust Singaporeans, is the same sense that when our government many years ago allowed us to go to China, remember many years they did not allow us to go to China because they thought we would then be duped into communists. What happened when we went to China was that we sensed an empathy for Chinese culture, but when we came back to Singapore, we were ultra grateful for the society that we live in. And I think this could have been a great opportunity for younger Singaporeans to recognize that the people who are out there as exiles, they're not terrible people, they believed in their cause, but, but we would, younger Singaporeans would have understood that it is so fortunate that the PAP won because the system that we live under today for all its faults would have been much better than the system that would have existed if they had won. It would have been a system of Cuba. It would have been Vietnam. So we missed an opportunity by simply saying that these were self-serving people. We all know they're not threats to Singapore anymore. They are self-serving. Who would not be self-serving? But at the same time, are Singaporeans not I guess, educated, mature enough to recognize that the battle for the whole soul of Singapore was won by the people who should have won. And they won, and be magnanimous enough to let this be a teaching exercise. So I found it unfortunate because it could have, I think, even made younger Singaporeans realize what actually happened. And by banning it on the grounds of being self-serving, means that we have to postpone the period of education and of history being really... I mean, history will have to be rewritten, and I think when history is rewritten and Operation Code Store is examined and everything else, history will still come to the conclusion that the battle was won by those who should have won. And we do not need to write the history every line and chapter. Let it be enough room for... Others who may be self serving to say their piece. So I found it unfortunate because I think it would actually have helped to illustrate the reality of what the PAP went through and how they made the right decision. And the battle that Lee Kuan Yew had to fight was a real battle with real people that are not just in history books. I think we have questions for time for three questions. Yeah.
6: Mr. Ho, thank yeah. you for your wonderful lecture. My question is that what are the factors uh, has been uh, molding the Singapore society? Uh, uh, I think in the past 50 years that education, income, uh, whether you are blue collar, you are uh, white collar, kind of decides w- which flat you are living on so that uh, these social statistics like uh, uh, forum flat HDB or private housing making sense to statistics and uh, to know uh, how they move around the social uh, uh, ladders. But what are going to be, are these factors still be relevant in the next 50 years, with internalization, with the internet, with uh, uh, young people? And uh, what will be the factors in the next 50 years? Uh, one more
1: question, understood what you meant by the previous mm. factors. The previous factors like uh, 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 the people usually,
6: because they usually go by, uh, by their own family, and they are bonded by the, uh, the, their parents' income, and where they live, and their friends and with now the society is changing with a lot of inflow of people from international and with a lot of inflow of information and how these change things will be
1: affecting uh, people's growth in the next 50 years? Well, I think think there are a lot of fundamentals that will not change um, in terms of how people value themselves relative to others, relative wealth, relative deprivation, uh, that will not change. If your question is how will, how will Singapore change because of the big influx of foreigners over the next 50 years, um, I guess my point would be we've always had an influx of foreigners. Singapore is an immigrant society. We are having a particular period now, um, just like Hong Kong is having a, a super strong reaction to mainlanders because of the huge uncontrolled influx of mainlanders into Hong Kong, making Hong Kong people feel a loss of identity Uh, There will be periodic periods where the influx of foreigners uh, will make many Singaporeans feel slightly xenophobic. But to the extent that we are basically an immigrant society, I don't think that would change. In terms of how we value ourselves, whether we have a three-room flat or a five-room flat or whatever, those are fundamental human attributes that we always look to compare ourselves with our neighbors. What I do not think will change in Singapore, and I hope will never change, if you look at Hong Kong and you look at Singapore, is that someone has said, I think very astutely, Hong Kong has a lot more freedom than Singapore, but Singapore has a lot more social justice. As long as Singapore preserves its sense of social justice, as long as we preserve fundamental ethos of egalitarianism, I think these things, if they don't change, I think we would still remain the society that we are today, even in the midst of globalization.
2: We have time for perhaps two more questions. The lady over there and then the gentleman over there.
4: Um, You touched on uh, the growing income uh, disparity or a growing disparity, uh, breadth in income. And I was just wondering... Could you you say
1: that again? I missed that. Uh,
4: Rising income income. Yeah, you've touched on rising income uh, disparity And I was just wondering, you've probably thought about this, is this a good thing overall in the next 50 years for Singapore? Does it make people hungrier or what is your perception of this? You've mentioned that in the past 50 years that having incomes on a similar level made people cohesive and and I'm just wondering now things have changed, is this a good thing or a bad thing and how would you look at it?
1: Well, I think first of all, if you want to be sort of more technical about it, um, income inequality, always exists in a capitalist society. Income inequality is positive to the, to the extent that it is an incentive for people to do better. So income inequality by itself is not necessarily a good or bad thing. It is a simple fact. Measurements of income inequality are also quite hugely distorted in a society like Singapore. You just need Edward Savarin and a few other Facebook billionaires to locate here and bingo our per capita GDP and our income inequality and our Gini coefficient change. I think what is important are two points, that income inequality at the lower end of the socioeconomic strata at the broad-based level does not increase more. And we had that happening because, and this happens everywhere in the developed world with the digital age and with an information-based society, those with lower skills tend to be left behind. A lot of job destruction is happening right now all over the world, and that's leading to income inequalities, which any responsible government has to try to to mitigate by educating the people who are left behind to higher skills and so on. I think what is equally important, though, and this is why I mentioned it, is that although there will always be income inequalities in all societies, the ethos of egalitarianism is hugely important. Because as long as I earn, I will earn less than you, but so long as I feel equal to you, so long as you treat me with the same amount of respect, we can have income inequality, but we can have an egalitarian society. That is very different than a communist system where we're all essentially equal. So the ethos of egalitarianism within an unequal society, is something that I think is hugely important because pure, absolute income inequality will always persist. But if you have income inequality and an ethos of inegalitarianism, of people flaunting wealth, of, of all the signs that I think we've moved away from, which we had in our early years, I think you're going to see more social problems and more social tensions arise.
2: One last question.
3: Uh, thanks. Um, have, yeah. I guess I just have two short questions.
1: Um,
3: what would you feel defines political legitimacy in Singapore? And then on the second hand, how close do you feel that the Singapore electorate is in, in terms of electing as a basis of policy moving forward uh, versus rewards for past performance? What's
1: the second question again?
3: Um, th- how close do you feel that the Singapore electorate is? to the point of being able to vote according to policies being suggested moving forward, as opposed to as just a reward for a regime or a policy group that has done very good policies in the past.
2: So
1: for promise rather than than accomplishment. Broad, very broadly speaking, I think it is a generational thing and a demographic thing I think younger people are more likely to vote for policies. They vote for the future. Older people, this is a total stereotype, but but I think there's some truth in it. Older people who have more to lose would basically vote to reward a government for what they've been given. And younger people, more idealistic, would vote for what they see the government, for the government doing, what the promise is to do, broadly speaking. In terms of your, uh, your first question, what was that? About or legitimacy, what would constitute political legitimacy? In, in my view, legitimacy, and I've said that before, legitimacy is when people recognize that the leadership that is there, whether it is appointed by the Communist Party, Xi Jinping and others, whether it is elected as in Singapore or quasi-elected as in Hong Kong, if they recognize that the specific leaders who are there and who are human and make policy mishaps, but are absolutely doing it for the sake of the people whom they're supposed to lead, I think there is innate in that a huge amount of legitimacy already. That people, the leadership is capable of making mistakes but the leadership exists to truly serve the people. It's very easy to talk about servant leadership, but how many political leaders really see themselves as servant leaders? I think that confers a huge amount of legitimacy, not just the political system as to whether elections are there or not. You have in the Western world, how many elected leaders who really have no political legitimacy because people know they have gotten there by populist promises or by even corruption and so on. Legitimacy is conferred upon leaders who, who, whom people see are truly acting in their best interests. Perhaps we have time for one more question. Do you still want to ask the question? Yeah, yes,
2: okay, just yeah. one, we already run out of time.
4: Thank you, yeah. uh, you mentioned the, the time on which the the, the government in Mexico stay in power. And yes, we had a very long time which the achievements cannot be compared to those of the government of Singapore. Here you have built institutions, you have built governance. We are lagging behind on that. That's a very brief comment. Now, as, as a foreigner living in Singapore, I have had the privilege to study and to write on the Singapore water story. And you find enormous achievements which are past and the government will be judged for what it has done in the past. And now the the future comes, right? And you mentioned that you have talked to young people and they want to participate. How do they want to participate? How how do you do it? By voting only or or is there the realization that the changes that people want to see mean that you also have to change and you may have to change in terms of, concrete things as your lifestyle, for example, what is the thinking?
1: Of course, I can only talk about the young people that I meet whom my children are kind enough to arrange for me to meet. Otherwise, I don't have all the opportunity to meet young people. But I would put it in contrast to my generation. In my generation, we generally sat around and griped. We would sit around, drink beer, and we would criticize the government on all measures. Or some people would be audacious enough to go and run in a political party, etc. But because the government was so over dominant, it basically did all the good things in which you just sat back and just enjoyed it, or they did all the things that you didn't like and you went and criticised them. But it was, it was those two extremes. I think young people today, as, as I said in my in my talk, I think young people today are less concerned about this the government being there as the centre of everything against which they either complain or they, they love. It is there, it is a presence, but it is this sense of self-agency, the, th- the fact that they just go and do things to express their views, as happened with the Pink Dot event, as happened with the Gay Penguins. These are events that would not have happened in my time because they were not, those two events were not partisan political events. They were not in support of a partic- particular political party. They were just young people basically saying, I don't agree with this, or in the case of Pink Dot, I celebrate diversity. People just go out now and do what they want to do to express themselves. This sense of self-agency, I think, is much stronger now among young people than it was during my time, and it is this same sense of self-agency which I think, if it crosses to the majority of young Singaporeans, this is what gives me hope for the future of Singapore. Thank you,
2: Um, all good things have come to an end. Uh, That's the bad news. Uh, The good news is that he's gonna do this another four times. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And I hope for the uh, next four lectures there'll be more young people uh, present. Um, So uh, thank you very much. Um, And your next lecture is three weeks from now. Uh, Have we fixed the date? Yeah, we fixed the date? November 12th. Okay, November 12th, keep that free. Uh, You're gonna speak on economics then I think, no? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so it's settled. Um, same location. Uh, okay. Details will be, sh- uh, later will be will be announced later. Can but you can uh, you please call
1: me Professor? Yeah. Ho. yeah. Thank you.
2: <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs>